Before he was Mr. Cub, he was a Kansas City monarch. What do we know about Ernie? Smiling, optimistic, sunny. It's a beautiful day for a ball game. Whenever you saw Ernie, you smiled, and that was his persona. That was what we all knew about. Once he started talking, I realized very quickly there was another Ernie Banks. This is the story of the man who was so much more than just Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks. Jarvis fires away. That's a fly ball, beat the left, back, back, that's it, that's it, hey, he did it, Ernie Banks got number 500. When Buck O'Neill passed away in 2006, an all-star delegation of notables were present for both his private funeral services and his memorial service. One of those individuals was his surrogate son, the late, great Ernie Banks. And this is what Ernie Banks had to say about Buck O'Neill. Just follow Buck O'Neill. This man is a leader. He's a genius. He understands people. He understands life. He will keep this going. He never gives up on situations he believes in. He's not discouraged about any of this. He believes he came along at the right time and is doing the right thing. He started the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. That was his goal, his mission. And many people resented that, but he stayed on course with his situations. All of us should learn from this man. He's an ambassador. He's a humanitarian. We should follow him and see what he has to say. That was the affinity that Ernie Banks had for the man who mentored him when he joined the Kansas City Monarchs at age 19 in the Negro Leagues. Buck O'Neill put his arms around Ernie Banks and he helped nurture him and Ernie Banks responded by becoming one of the greatest shortstop and first baseman in Major League Baseball history. But I guess you could just say one of the greatest players in Major League Baseball history. And it all starts in the Negro Leagues. In 2019, author Ron Rappaport completed decades of work with the release of the award-winning biography, Let's Play 2, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. Furthering the Buck O'Neill attitude of joy. What else would you rather be doing? This was an era when they weren't making a lot of money. You know, uh, the, the Negro Leagues, it was all, you know, passing a hat almost at certain times. There wasn't a lot of money to be had. But the more I went back and looked at the climate in the Negro Leagues that Ernie played in only briefly, it was such joy that they had, that they loved what they did. And Ernie brought this into the Major League. Remember now, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays were great, great players, but they weren't outgoing in the way Ernie was. You had to kind of get to know them. They were, they were still withdrawn in a way. Uh, I don't want to say they were cynical or looking around and nervous or anything. They fit right into the major leagues, and they showed how disgraceful it was that players of their era from before them hadn't been allowed to play either. But Ernie went beyond that, beyond showing what the greatness that the black players could exhibit. He, she showed the simple joy. And I think that's what made him Mr. Cub, made him such a great icon in Chicago. 
coming to the Kansas City Monarchs from Dallas, Texas, an outstanding athlete, football player, basketball player, actually didn't play a lot of baseball because there really weren't a lot of places for him to play baseball in a small segregated area of Dallas, Texas that he resided. Hall of Famer Ernie Banks recorded at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in 2004. My dad played a little baseball for the Dallas Green Monarchs, and I was a bad boy for that, and he was a catch and a pitcher, and that was my only connection to baseball. You're absolutely right that Ernie was a very shy person. All of his, remember I told you that I talked to his high school classmates and his sister and brother, and Ernie was a very shy guy. His high school nickname, Bob, was Ghost. (laughs) Every time... He'd be out running with the boys and maybe they'd get in trouble as his, his classmates and so on. And every time they got in trouble, they'd turn around. Ernie was gone. He was a very shy guy. I remember talking to Edna and I said, Edna, how did you feel when this Let's Play 2, it's, it's a beautiful day for a ball game, but this effervescent, optimistic, sunny guy was not the guy you knew, the, the, the brother you knew. And she said, Ron, I thought it was a put on. There was no baseball at my high school, no basketball at my high school, and I didn't have any great interest in it. Uh, I go to the Y and go swimming and play pool and play games there, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I uh, went over to the campus one day and I saw a guy named Bill Blair, and he talked me into playing football. So I went in and put on a uniform and I played football my second year in high school. The late great Bill Blair saw something. In Ernie Banks, Bill's skinny legs, Blair, saw something in Ernie Banks. After all, Bill Blair had pitched in the Negro Leagues, as Buck would coin him, old junk ball pitcher, but he could get you out. And he had become a fixture there in Dallas's growing black community. Bill Blair would become the publisher of the Elite newspaper, which became the voice of the black community and was an iconic civil rights leader there in Dallas. So his presence was very, very much looming large there in Dallas's black area. And he saw Ernie Banks. And he saw something in Ernie Banks. And he saw cool Papa Bell. Well, I played uh, semi-pro baseball in Amarillo, Texas, while I was in high school during the summer. And uh, one of the uh, managers out there was a guy named Coo Papa Bell of the team that we played against. And I had a good game against them. So he came over and said, hey, you can play baseball. I'm going to recommend you to the Kansas City Monarchs, the big team. And that's what he did. And uh, sure enough, Buck O'Neill came to Dallas and signed me up. Biographer Ron Rappaport. Buck taught him two things. One was how to play baseball. Buck would stand out in the hot Kansas City sun and hit hundreds and hundreds of ground balls turned to his left, to his right, hitting at him, hitting at him, hitting at him. And Ernie would later recall that those were some of the best days he ever had in baseball, was standing out in the hot Kansas City sun, fielding ground balls with O'Neill. Buck brought that out in me. He really pushed me, got me out to work out days before we played the game. And sometime it was in about 100 degrees in Kansas City. He'd be hitting ground balls to me left and right and, you know, the batting practice and, you know, showing me the fundamentals of how to make a double play and all of that. And so I just got the feel of it and began to enjoy that. I enjoyed the working much better than the playing. In other words, it's like I always like 
digging for the gold rather than the gold, <laughs> G-O-L-D. Yeah. That has always been my life. So I enjoyed the working out, the learning, and, and all that. He also picked up on Buck's attitude. What else would you rather be doing, Buck would say. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I had people tell me that people who knew Buck and who knew Ernie, and they said when they saw Ernie, when they heard Ernie, they saw Buck. Now, mm -hmm. Ernie was 19 years old when he got to Kansas City, and he thought he was in heaven. They traveled together, the monarchs. They went to hotels together. They went to restaurants together. They went to the ballpark together. They did everything together. And Ernie was this shy young guy who stood on the sidelines and watched them relate to each other and relate to their fans and relate to the travel. And he couldn't have enjoyed it more. I came here when there was a young man named Elson Howard. He came at the same time and he and I roomed together. Buck put us together and he had a little bit more experience than I did. So it was, it was just learning and looking and being around other players and following the rules and listening to Buck. And because most of the players were a little bit older than me. So I just kind of followed their guidelines and listened to them. And when they say it's time to go work out, we go work out. It's time to get on the bus, we go get on the bus. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, followed uh, whatever everybody was doing and what Buck had uh, directed me to do. And as Buck O'Neill would say about Kansas City, and in particular 18th and Vine, I knew I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe because Kansas City and 18th and Vine was the center of the universe. Oh, the place was jumping. And when a young Ernie Banks gets to Kansas City, he's playing professional baseball with some of the greats of the game. Even by 1950, the Monarchs lineup was still pretty doggone star-studded. And here's a young Ernie Banks being a part of that. And that never left him. He talks about his years in the Negro Leagues, even though they were brief, with great adulation. The greatest time of his life, as he would say, when he was playing there for the Kansas City Monarchs. How much he learned being there as part of the Negro Leagues and what that experience meant to him. Or as he would say, playing for the Kansas City Monarchs was like my school, my learning, my world. It was my whole life. I was playing alongside of a player that went to the Pirates, Kurt Roberts. He signed with the Pirates, and he was a second baseman, so I played with him. I played with another guy named Bonnie Sorrell. He was a second baseman, and, you know, just learning as I went along, and it, it was fun. I, I, I didn't do a lot. I didn't hit a lot of home runs. Didn't have no great batting average. Just just an average-type player, and, and what I wanted to do was just learn how to play the game and and learn how to relate to the people that I was with. He played with them for two years, 1950 and then 1953, separated by two years in the Army. Now, his first year in 1950, he didn't play well. The records weren't well kept because one of the things that happened when the Negro Leagues started going out of business after major leagues became integrated was that the record keeping fell off because now the fans and the record keepers were much more interested in the black players who had made it to the major leagues. But Ernie said he hit about 240, and that seems to be about right. Now he goes to the Army, he comes back, it's 1953, he's a little older now, and he goes to Kansas City, and he 
He gets hurt. He gets homesick. He'd just been married. He left the team, went home to Dallas. Buck O'Neill had to go down to Dallas and come on back. You got to do this. Now it's late in August. The season's almost over. And Ernie went on a tear. He hit everything in slick. He gets his first reference in the sporting news is this fine young player from the Negro Leagues. Looks like he's really going to be good. But he only had about two good months. He learned so much. He was mentored so much. He was given so much. And I can understand why he didn't want to leave. He didn't understand that the Negro Leagues were cool. All he knew was that these were his friends. These were his teammates. Buck O'Neill was his guy. Why would you want to be kicked out of that nest? But he had to go, and he did. He had to go, in part, because the best of the best were telling him that he belonged in the majors. Well, they came around, and they was picking players with the Monarchs to play with Jackie Robinson Bondstorming team. You know, after the Major League season was over, many of the players, the black players, had Bondstorming teams. And uh, they picked me to play uh, with Jackie's team. And we went around for three weeks, uh, played in Mississippi and all through the South Florida and all that with Jackie, Larry Doby, Don Newcomb, and Roy Campanella. Uh, i never forget in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, I think I got a hit or something, and Jackie came over and he said, hey, you can play Major League Baseball. You got great hands and, you know, you're quick, you see the ball and all that. And I was just looking at it. I didn't say anything. And uh, he said, we'll recommend you to the Dodgers. And so I went to Dom, and he did, and that was a wonderful thing. Bob, when the time came for him to go to Chicago, at the end of the 1953 season, the Monarchs had finished their season. There were still two weeks left in the Cubs and they, they were in Pittsburgh. And Buck gave him a ticket and $10 take a bus to Chicago. And Ernie didn't want to go. I don't want to leave here. What do I know about Chicago? I don't want anything to do with this. And they had to talk him into it. Sherwood Brewer was one of the Monarchs' great infielders who had taught Jackie Robinson how to play second base mm-hmm. and taught Ernie Banks how to play shortstop and second base. Said, Ernie, you have to go. You have to do this. You can't stay here. You have to go. Now, guys like Sherwood Brewer were good players, but they were older now and they weren't going to get their chance. But they didn't look at it. They weren't angry. They weren't bitter. They said basically what he was saying to Ernie was, you have to go and you have to go take the chance and make the most of it that we didn't get. September 53, I signed with the Cubs. Uh That's when Buck got me and a guy named Bill Dickey together, took us out to Wrigley Field and we signed up, and he told uh, Bill Dickey that he's going to play in the minor leagues and that I was going to join the Cubs at the end of the season, uh, which we had 10 games left in September. So I joined the team uh, September the 18th, 1953. When he gets to Chicago, he's isolated. He's in a world of his own. You know, it was a new kind of experience because of uh, integration. I had never been around white folks until I came to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was Kansas City to Chicago, it was just all different. I just listened and looked and they speak and say hello and <laughs> say hello to them and that was it. I just kind of stayed in my own world of being friendly with them. Yeah. But I did see a lot of the players who came up prior to me. Jackie, Doby, Campanella, Dan Bankhead, Jim Gilliam, deal with a lot of stress. And I don't know how they, it's always, it's still a mystery to me how they deal with all that stress. I mean, 
from the inside, the players that they played with, the media, the expectation and all of that. And I always felt that through stress, it affects your immune system and then you get diseases and you die. I thought about that, and I tried to deal with that when I came to the club. I mean, these guys speak, hello, how are you, nice to see you, and then they turn around and I'd be gone. That's right. But it was a tough learning experience for me, but I, I just went with it, you yeah. know, because at that time, you played together, the team, the Cubs, and you lived apart. We go south, they go north. Mm-hmm. So there was no interaction at all other than on the field, maybe, or at the locker room, or at the, on the train, or in the restaurant, or whatever. All of his teammates are white, except for Gene Baker, who they brought up to be Gene with him. Gene was older and had, had had more experience, had grown up in Des Moines, had been around white people, and he was a good person to have around to sort of show earning the ropes. But when the game ended, instead of going out, going out to dinner, going out to clubs, get, getting on the bus, going back to the hotel, traveling together. The white players all went to their homes in Chicago and the white neighborhoods in Chicago. We all know how segregated Chicago was and is. Ernie and Gene would go down to the south side of town and live in a hotel where members of the Chicago Bears lived, where black people lived. So Ernie, there was this great disconnect from all the fun he had had, all the being around all black people almost entirely in Kansas City, to now being thrown into this completely different environment. And it was very difficult for him. It was very strange. A lot of getting used to. And I believe that Ernie developed this sunny, optimistic, let's play two attitude that we know Ernie as a shield, as a defense mechanism to kind of deal with the difficulties and the problems that he was having getting used to his new environment. My, my line is that Ernie played offense by going on defense. If he could charm you, if he could say, how are you doing? How's your family? How's your wife? If he could get into that attitude, then you wouldn't ask him about himself. And that's why he spent 60 years in Chicago going on offense. What's going on? Isn't this great? Isn't this beautiful? And never being asked about himself. It was a game he played and it worked. And as he saw it work, he got into it more and more and he became the avoidant. Sonny, optimistic Ernie Banks. We know. Ernie Banks with interviewer Ray Doswell at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in 2004. Did you ever get comfortable where you felt like, you know, the, the uneasiness or just the caution kind of went away? When did that happen? Or did it ever happen? Never happened. Mm-hmm. Never no. happened. I was talking to Rachel Robinson mm-hmm. and I was talking about her children and all that. She had uh, one son that went to Africa, he went to Kenya. He says, you know, he writes me and he calls me and he tells me, he said, Mom, I've never been a place where I've been as free as I am here. Did I thought about that? Did I thought about it again? But, you know, free, you know, where you can be yourself and do the things you wanted to do and not be conscious of who's watching you, yeah. who's judging you, or who's around that trying to get you in traps and all of that. And I thought about that, but I have never really, more and more, I begin to feel that way, that I'm free now. Mm-hmm. Like Dr. King said, free at last, free at last. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I retired, I began to see the difference in, in my life. He 
was left on his own to go to the South Side and basically fend for himself. So the innate fear that he had about isolation was very real. But Ernie Banks was able to overcome that isolation. Part of the reason was Buck O'Neill would eventually follow him to the Chicago Cubs as a scout and then as the major's first black coach. Former Negro leaguer, the great Buck O'Neill. With the Cubs, though, in uh, 1953, when Ernie signed. See, I signed Ernie here in 1950. Mm-hmm. Ernie played here in 1950, went into service, 51, 52, came back in 53. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And that's when the people, you know, started looking at him. And uh, we played our all-star game in Chicago in 1953. That's when uh, Ernie broke the ball game up with a home run. Mm-hmm. And to get to the hotel that night, Tom Baird said, uh, bring uh, Ernie out to the club ballpark. They want to sign him tomorrow. So that Monday, I brought Ernie out to the ballpark. They signed him, and uh, the guy that was the general manager said, uh, Buck, we're going to sign Ernie. So you sign Ernie, to, but say, now, your ball game, this, this Negro League ball is just about over. Tom Beard's going to sell this ball club, and when he does, I want you to come and work for me as a scout. I said, that sounds all right for me. Mm-hmm. And he said, so since you signed Ernie to a contract with the Monarchs, your first job with the Cubs signed into this contract. So I signed Ernie twice. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the way I got with And then 55, 56. See, when, after he told the team in 55, then I went to work with the Cubs oh, okay. in 56. And as a coach, Buck O'Neill continued his work of nurturing Ernie Banks. He taught him social skills. He taught him how to dress. He did virtually everything, and he had already taught him how to play this game. Or as Buck would say, he didn't really teach Ernie how to play the game. He taught Ernie how to love the game. And when Ernie Banks fell in love with the game, the game fell back in love with Ernie Banks. Well, Jackie told me the first day I came to the Cubs, uh, uh, in 53, we played the Dodgers. They had always won the pennant in September, and he didn't play. I got there early, and he got there early. He ran all the way across the field, the third base, and I came out of the dugout, and he came up and said, I'm glad you're here. I knew you would be here, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I just want to tell you uh, one thing. Just listen, and you'll learn. And that's what I did for five years when I went to Cubs. I just listened. Mm-hmm. They thought I was a deaf mute because I didn't, <laughs> didn't say anything. I didn't, they want to do interviews and all that, and I, I, I just wasn't familiar with it, understand it, and listen to Jackie. He said, just listen and you'll learn. But through the season, you know, somebody be playing in the city, like Pearl Bailey was in St. Louis, went to see her, went backstage. Count Basie went to see him. We would go to a lot of the places where the black entertainers were performing, go backstage and all of them. I never forget Pearl Bailey told me, said, you're a wonderful person and you're going to be the first to do a lot of things. Never forget that. She, she was very outspoken and just stay there and play and keep your mouth shut and just do what you need to do and, and that's it. He was a wonderful, wonderful ball player. He was a back-to-back MVP in 58 and 59 for teams that finished in sixth place. You know? Yeah. How good would he have had to be to be the MVP? <laughs> They were never in the pennant race. 
But Ernie never let it bother him. Later, when he got old, after he retired, he admitted how much it bothered him. But the joy was real. The outgoing pleasure that he took in the game was real. And the way that it rubbed off on the fans was real. They adored white fans, white kids, as much as black kids. Now, the blacks lived on the South Side. They didn't get to receive Ernie played before mostly black fans, and there weren't very many of them. There were some games where the ballpark was almost empty, and he was doing these magical things before almost nobody. Didn't seem to matter to Ernie. The joy was real. Oh, he had great hands, great range, and one of the truest arms I'd ever seen. I never saw any make a bad throw mm-hmm. from shortstop mm-hmm. and could hit that low pitch. Mm-hmm. And I knew major leaguers, that's what they taught, to keep pitch low. And I know he's going to burn this thing up, and he did. <laughs> One of the reasons that Ernie didn't get his due at shortstop was he was too busy in reinventing the position. Ernie was hitting home runs. Shortstops didn't hit yeah. home runs then. They were little guys. They were Louis Aparicio. They were small guys who hit singles and bunted. Well, now Ernie is hitting more home runs, 54, 55, than almost all the other shortstops in the National League combined. And nobody knew what to make of that. It was it was kind of strange, and people were looking at him hitting all these home runs, and they were saying that's not a shortstop. Well, today Cal Ripken, Derek Jeter, those people, you know, shortstops hit home runs. It was it was yes. silly that big guys couldn't play shortstop, but the the fact that so much of the attention was directed to his offensive ability kind of overshadowed and took away from the attention that he got as a great field in shortstop. Mr. Cobb. Mr. Let's play two, a sunny disposition that is no doubt the spillover effect of having been around Buck O'Neill and falling in love with the game of baseball. But Ernie Banks never lost sight of where it all began for him in the Negro Leagues. And he remained loyal to what the Negro Leagues represented both on and off the field and to what the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum meant to him as the place that was now the caretaker of this wonderful story of overcoming adversity, triumph over adversity. And after all, it was the place that his surrogate father, Buck O'Neill, had built. And that is why Ernie was always a mainstay at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And when I attended his funeral in 2015, and then later spoke at a memorial service in Dallas, Texas, his hometown. That was one of the most meaningful, significant things that I'd ever done. And to try to capture what Ernie Banks meant to the Negro Leagues and what Ernie Banks meant to Major League Baseball. Because in my mind, he is one of the first black stars who got to exhibit his personality. You know, most of the black stars, when they came into the Major Leagues, they were so reserved. They were very businesslike because they had to. Ernie Banks performed well, but he also had this really erivescent personality that came out, even though it may have been a little bit challenging for him off the field. The sunny disposition that you saw on the field was real because, again, he had learned to fall in love with baseball. Well, let's see. We was, it was uh, July 1967. And it was about 100 degrees in Chicago at Wrigley Field. So I walked into the clubhouse, and everybody was 
a little tired and everything. So I walked in the clubhouse, a beautiful day, and I said, boy, it's a beautiful day. Let's play, too. So they all looked at me like I was crazy. Billy William, Ron Sano, Jorge Jenkins. I looked at them and said, you've got to be crazy. Man, it's 110 degrees. I think about playing, too. <laughs> that kind of connected to me, and it became a big part of my life, and I really enjoyed it. Coming up next, a conversation with Ernie Banks' teammate with the Chicago Cubs, a Hall of Famer himself, the great Ferguson Jenkins. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? There's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome to Black Diamonds a man who is no stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We inducted him into our Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. He has been a friend and a mainstay here. He was a teammate of Ernie Banks and a fellow Hall of Famer, the legendary Fergie Jenkins. Fergie, how are you, sir? Uh, Good, Bobby. Good seeing you. Good talking to you. And I'll see you in a couple of days, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I tell you, it's great to have you on the show, and it's great uh, to have your perspective on your old roommate, Ernie Banks. Let's start by sharing with me, what was it like to room with Ernie Banks? Well, Ernie was the kind of individual that always talked the game of baseball, never talked about himself, always wanted to... Uh, uh, let uh, people or even myself know what he thought of the Chicago Cubs at the time. And he was happy to put that uniform on, run across the diamond and play first base. Uh, he, he had the enthusiasm that a rookie would have, and he had it every day. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty amazing. And, and I've related to a lot of people that that enthusiasm and joy that he had for the game was a bit of the spillover effect from being around the late, great Buck O'Neill. I think so. I think because of the fact that he uh, was the first player of color to play for the Chicago Cubs in the organization and to win two MVPs in a losing uh, situation, especially the Cubs back in, in the 60s were a losing organization, and he was an outstanding player, and he displayed that talent day in and day out. And for... Uh, for me to know Ernie Banks and to room with him the last three years he played, 67, 8, 9, believe me, it was an honor. Yeah, no, and, and uh, of course, there's many visits here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. By the time you get to the Cubs, 
and I believe you get to the Cubs in 66, if I'm not mistaken. And Ernie becomes, Ernie becomes your first roommate. How much did you know about him prior to joining the Cubs? You know, I just heard of stories about uh, some of the, the good ball players in the National League, and Ernie was one of them. Willie Mays, uh, geez, McCovey, uh, Clemente, uh, Zapata. There's so many players that had notoriety. And when I was in the minor leagues, uh, and if they had a game of the week, that was the individual you walked, watched to come into the plate uh, on a daily basis. And, and Ernie had that, that, that kind of walk that uh, he had that confidence situation where when he came to the plate, he was going to do damage. He didn't care who was pitching, Koufax, Drysdale, uh, you name it back then, uh, uh, because the fact that he had uh, that reputation of being such a good hitter, uh, a good ball player, uh, a clutch hitter. Uh, and when I joined the team, he was uh, uh, 37 years old. Yes. And one of the senior players on the team, uh, I, my first roommate in spring training was Byron Brown. And then when the season started, uh, I room with Brownie most of the season. And, and the 67 season, when I became a starter, Ernie and I roomed together. Uh, I just think that uh, what was nice about uh, Roman was a veteran. He had most of the answers that was going on around the league <laughs> and, and who the pitchers were that I might have to face uh, as a fellow pitcher. You know, veterans like, like Jim Bunning, I pitched against him, Chris Short, Drysdale, Seaver, uh, so many guys, uh, uh, guys with, at, with the Cincinnati Reds and, and, and with the San Francisco Marichal and Gaylord Perry. But the nice thing about it, he had a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge about the game they talked about the game. Yes. Yeah. You know, I find something very interesting also, Fergie, that you guys both shared in common and that that was both of you were great basketball players. Ernie had been a great basketball player in high school, did a little stint with the Globies, and you were a heck of a basketball player and spent some time with the Globetrotters. Did that conversation ever come up between the two of you? You know, uh, when we had the... Uh the basketball team with the Cubs. Cubs had a, a team that we toured in the wintertime. We played against a bunch of faculty, high school, college faculty, to raise money for different charities that were part of uh, what these uh, uh, high school and college uh, uh, programs had. We talked a little bit about the game of basketball. Ernie knew I had a good jump shot. I was a fast break guy. He never really talked about himself scoring a lot of baskets. But he said he at one time he did some work uh, with the Globetrotters. And for, for me to uh, understand that and then starting the tour with him in 67, uh, we, like you say, we had a lot in common. Yeah, no, I, I always found that pretty neat because that's something that a lot of people did not know about Ernie was that he was an outstanding all-around athlete just as you were as well. And, and you know what? that was part of that legacy of the Negro Leagues. I talk about the players from the Negro Leagues, and I guess I described them more often that, that they were some of the greatest athletes to ever play baseball. And because their athleticism, well, they could have played anything. Oh, definitely. There were so many uh, uh, good athletes that, that played in the Negro League. They could pitch, play the outfield, catch, and also, uh, as you said, uh, basketball was... Uh, something that uh, they enjoyed playing. And, and I just think that people don't really give a lot of the 
uh, Negro League athletes enough credit. They were phenomenal athletes, great entertainers, and uh, to understand what they had to do and go through, um, believe me, that was a trial that they were able to, to conquer. Yeah, Fergie, and you're absolutely right, because when I tell people that Jackie Robinson's weakest sport was baseball, it blows their mind. He was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player, and some say an even better tennis player, and yet he turns himself in this, into this incredibly talented major leaguer. And that, to me, is an example of the kind of talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. Now, I, I am curious because when Ernie left the Negro Leagues, and of course, you know, he comes to the Negro Leagues in 1950, and then he has his Negro Leagues service interrupted by the war, uh, and then he comes back to the Monarchs in 53, and of course, Buck orchestrates the move for him to sign with the Cubs later that year, and he begins his career. His real rookie season was 1954. As a fellow black man, coming into the major leagues at a time when there still wasn't an overwhelming number of blacks. There were certainly more by the time that you got there. Did Ernie ever talk about the isolation that he felt when he joined the Cubs early on? Because Fergie, he didn't want to leave the Monarchs because he was so comfortable in that environment being around his friends and peers and they were going to do things together. They hung out after the game. They went to the nightclubs, the whole nine yards. And he understood that when he took this journey to the major leagues, life was going to be different at that time. Because when he gets there, it's only he and Gene Baker. And I don't know if you ever got to meet Gene Baker or not. But Gene had also played for the Monarchs as well. And, of course, they formed that, that outstanding double play tandem but they were pretty isolated when they got there. Did he ever talk to you about what life was like those early years with the Cubs? Well, you know, the big thing is he would mention uh, he loved the city. And when he started to produce and uh, to put big numbers up, uh, the city just gravitated to him. Uh, I know that he did talk about Gene Baker. I didn't have a chance to meet him. But uh, I know that uh, having two players of color on the ball club would probably help the situation because – you hate to be isolated. Yes. And uh, I imagine that that first uh, year or so he was isolated because he was, he was the only player of color. But I, I think the teammates that he had probably made him feel comfortable. But he was a, a run producer, an RBI guy. I mean, he just – and he had a great batting average too. So I, I just think that uh, people gravitated to Ernie because he was such a good player. Yeah, no, there, there is no doubt because in my eyes, he kind of revolutionized the shortstop position when he gets there, you know, because he brought power to the shortstop position. And, and really, you didn't see a lot of that at the major league level. And, and so he actually is one of the few Negro League shortstops that really got an opportunity. It was still kind of this position that was somewhat taboo for Fergie in terms of they didn't believe that we were smart enough to play catcher or shortstop. And, and of course, the pitching position was a whole nother story. And, and so you, you obviously represent that role as a great black pitcher. Um, but there weren't many of you in, in Major League Baseball yet. No, uh, you're right. You're right, Bobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. 
pictures of color, there were, there were maybe just a, a half a dozen. Uh, Al Jackson, Bob Gibson, myself, McBean, Bob Veal. Uh, there were very, very few black pitchers on certain ball clubs. And if you were uh, a pitcher that could play the game, believe me, you got a lot of recognition. And in my case, uh, when, I, when I left the Phillies and started to win as a Cub, there were a lot of articles being written about this young Canadian uh, <laughs> being able to win ball games. And then I started putting uh, winning seasons together, uh, and I, I was very fortunate enough to win some 20 games. Yeah, that, that, that is beautiful. Uh, and I, I, I have to chuckle every time I hear the story of Ernie and the, how the Let's Play 2 came into existence. And, and I believe, as I've heard it, and you can confirm this, that it was just one of those god-awful hot days there in, at Wrigley. And, and here comes Ernie in all of his exuberance, bopping into the locker room saying, let's play two. And everybody's looking at him. You know, it was a beautiful day. Let's play two. And everybody's looking at him like, man, you have lost your mind. Can, can you remember what that day was like when he came in and said that? Uh, I can't recall, but a lot of the, the stories that you hear, and guys uh, would say that, why, why does Ernie want to play two games? You know, we played double hitters on Sunday, but he had that theory, let's play two every day. And he just loved the game that much. But I know that uh, when he got up in age, he, believe me, he was just happy to play one. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and the thing that old Buck, old Buck O'Neill, and, and people would oftentimes give Buck credit for helping develop the talent that Ernie had. Ernie had the ability, and Buck seemingly brought it out of him, and Ernie himself would give Buck the credit for him turning into such a great baseball player. But what Buck O'Neill would say of Ernie Fergie is that Ernie was already one heck of a baseball player. What I taught him was he needed to love the game and how to love the game. And Ernie seemed to embrace that and then embodied that. And I think that's why he became such a fan favorite over there in Chicago. I mean, the numbers spoke for themselves. But that, that unbridled joy that he seemed to bring to the ballpark every single day was absolutely infectious. And, and, and you were a part of that, even though it was at the later stages of his career. And he wasn't the same Ernie Banks that broke into this game when you got there. How did, you know, and you went through the same thing in terms of knowing when it was time to say when. Did he talk to you about, at all, about when he was going to decide to hang it up? Well, you know, the biggest thing is he talked about that uh, Buck O'Neill helped him uh, with the first base aspect because uh, Buck O'Neill was the first baseman. Yes. And uh, he, he, he got some traits, got some skill uh, ideas from, from Buck O'Neill because Ernie had good footwork. Uh, later on in life, he, he, he became a little slower, but he still had that good glove. And I think that's what Buck O'Neill seen in, in Ernie when he's, he switched from short to first base. Uh, you know, when when... We we used to talk the game of baseball. It, it wasn't about years past. It was about the present. Uh, mm. Playing against the Dodgers, playing against the Mets, playing against the Giants. Uh, when the road trip started, 
he knew, and I knew, who I was going to have to face. I got uh-huh. Austin in St. Louis. I get Drysdale in, in uh, L.A. I get Marichal in San Francisco. And he would always reiterate, hey, we're going to score you some runs. You got to keep us in the game. You got to keep us in the game. And that was what, what Ernie, I think, brought to me. He talked the game. He wouldn't let you forget that you can't afford to make mistakes and, and uh, get behind because of the fact that some of these ball clubs, once they got the lead, they weren't going to relinquish it. So I was real fortunate enough to, to have Ernie tell me a lot of times, you got to do this, you got to do that. And to make sure I'd uh, keep that idea in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, Fergie, the one thing about being the ace of the ball club is you always pitched against the other aces. And so, they were, so you know, it, it, you had to be locked in because you were pitching against opposition that wasn't going to give up much either. So I can only imagine what that must have been like, because you already rattled off a list of names that were your contemporaries you know, and they were all doggone good. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I matched up against Seaver quite a bit. Uh, as I said, uh, mostly uh, with the Cardinals, with, I got Gibson. Yeah. And I got Marichal with the San Francisco Giants and Drysdale. But, you know, that, the competition kind of made me understand that I got to try to win. I gotta, my focus was to win. <laughs> so I did that. On, I try to do it on a daily basis. Yeah, well, you know, I've always said that what you accomplished pitching so many years, and as they like to say, the cozy confines of Wrigley Field, I don't think there was anything too cozy for pitchers about Wrigley Field, but what you were able to do there at Wrigley is absolutely amazing. And, and I know, you know, you are part of that fraternity of Hall of Famers. And it's hard for a Hall of Famer to be underrated, but I've said this on many occasions. If a Hall of Famer is underrated, you would be in that category because of the work that you put in there at Wrigley and, again, on some teams that weren't that great of ball clubs and you were still able to win 20 games plus and, you know, you you just perform so beautifully and to have you and Ernie be a part of the Negro League Baseball Museum's family has been vitally important to me. Uh, I miss our friend Ernie Banks. Uh, he used to call me, Fergie, on occasions just to check in and see how I was doing here, uh, as Ernie would do, I'm sure, with a lot of other people. And, and I tell you, man, I would love to get that phone call again. He was a special human being. And uh, to have the two of you guys there for that part of his career, uh, I know it meant a world to him. And to have you and Billy and the other great black players who obviously came through Chicago, as Buck O'Neill would say, it seemed like every black player he brought the Cubs, they traded him. But they didn't trade this guy, Mr. Cub, and you were there with him. It was special. Uh, it is special being anywhere that you are. And, and I can't thank you enough, man, for giving us a little bit of time to be here on Black Diamonds for this episode, remembering your friend, the late, great Ernie Banks. Well, I appreciate it, Bobby. Uh, he was one of a kind, believe me. Uh, to hit 511 or 512 home runs, uh, he, was a, he was an outstanding, he was a special player. I think he was, I think at one time, he might have been the last really true 
home run hitter to hit 511, 512 home runs. One of the 10 individuals. Yes. Yeah. Now, he, he was a special kind of athlete, a special kind of personality. And again, I don't know of a player who was more readily identified with an organization as he was. I guess hence the name Mr. Cub. And so it's exciting for me to reflect on his career and even more exciting to have you be part of that reflection. And I thank you so much for being on the show. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.